Welkom bij het Congresjournaal van de Nederlandse Zijdschrift van Hematologie. In deze podcastserie brengen wij samen met toonaangevende opinieleiders de highlights van internationale medische congressen direct naar uw spreekkamer. In deze aflevering spreken we met dr. Paul Montesinos, hematoloog in het universiteitsziekenhuis La Fe in Valencia. Good day, dr. Montesinos, and welcome to this podcast. During the ESH conference, you talked about AML treatment. After decades of one standard therapy for AML patients, the treatment landscape is now finally starting to change. Why was this necessary? This was necessary not, not because it is the same since the last uh, three decades, but because the results were or are still really uh, dismal for, for the vast majority of AML patients, in particular um, elderly patients who are not treated uh, with uh, curative schedules, uh, intensive schedules, they have uh, very bad uh, outcomes. And in younger patients uh, who are approached uh, using a standard 3 plus 7 or, 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 or similar uh, intensive chemotherapy regimens for those patients, uh, although the initial control of the disease with uh, relatively high rates of compromise remission, there is a still uh, more than 50% of patients that will relapse or will show resistance to initial uh, backbone therapy. And uh, these uh, intensive schedules, uh, as well as allogenic stem cell transplant, um, are very uh, toxic uh, approaches. Although they have been curing uh, our patients uh, or many of our patients since the last three decades, they are very toxic approaches and uh, in fact we had uh, some uh, improvements uh, using the same regimens uh, anthracycline and, uh, and cytarabine uh, during the especially during the last two decades and these improvements they came through supportive care using uh, transfusions and, uh, and uh, antibiotic and antifungal therapy but it is clear that we need to make uh, some additional improvements. Besides the toxicity of current treatment regimens, what else makes the treatment of AML patients challenging? I think that uh, a part of the, of the toxicity of uh, therapies, um, there is a uh, quite uh, high rate of uh, resistance. Uh, we know that, uh, that AML is a uh, heterogeneous disease, a polychronal disease, and uh, with these intensive approaches we can eradicate uh, disease in the beginning, but we can have in, in, in many patients relapse with the same clone or different different clones. Uh, this is, this is a, a very challenging setting, but as I mentioned before, uh, the median age of, of AML uh, at presentation is uh, approximately 79 70 years old depending on on the on the on the data source uh, and above 70 years old um, i would say that uh, the majority or even the vast majority of patients and this will represent more than one third of overall aml patients they uh, do not receive appropriate uh, therapies uh, uh, with with an acceptable rate of disease control and unfortunately when disease is controlled uh, the the vast majority more than 80% will finally 
relapse. So the majority of our AML patients, they do not have adequate uh, treatment approaches nowadays. You briefly mentioned the heterogeneity of the disease. Which AML subsets should be identified at the time of diagnosis in order to optimize treatment? Yes, uh, I, I can respond this this question based on on the on the latest improvements in the I would say in the, in the last decade, especially, uh, and what we have implemented in our cooperative group in the Spanish group. What we are doing, we are rapidly identifying patients with uh, core binding factor leukemia. Uh, these patients, uh, usually younger patients, they benefit uh, from the addition of uh, mylotar, or they can benefit also uh, through the addition uh, of uh, uh, more doses of anthracycline. There are different approaches, but this core binding factor leukemia uh, seems uh, chemosensitive patients, and we try to intensify uh, the frontline therapy for these patients and we can have more than 65% of, of long-term survival. So it is important to, to, to identify from the beginning uh, this, this uh, core binding factor uh, leukemia. Of course, acupromelastic leukemia should also be rapidly identified and starting uh, differentiating agents only at the suspicion of acupromelastic leukemia. A part of this, uh, we are also rapidly identifying uh, FIDT3 mutated patients um, through a rapid diagnosis platform with centralized uh, sample, sampling in specialized uh, labs. Uh, and in a median of three days, we can have the FIDT3 status of internal duplication or TKDs. And uh, starting on day uh, seven, um, uh, Midostorin, a first-generation FLT3 inhibitor, who has demonstrated improvements in, in long-term survival in younger patients uh, submitted to 3 plus 7 uh, chemotherapy. So these are now the, the two uh, settings of patients that uh, should be uh, genetically identified uh, rapidly. Let's say in less than three days, we, we need to have um, uh, this genetic diagnosis. And a part of that, we have a specific uh, protocols for MPN1 uh, positive patients. And it looks that uh, in the near future in Spain, at least, and uh, probably this is already happening in, in United States or in, in a lot of countries of Europe, that uh, secondary AML patients and those with MDS-related uh, karyotype, uh, mostly monosomy 7 or uh, 5, and they could benefit also from a rapid identification of these abnormalities uh, in order to, to start induction with uh, CPX351, that is a liposomal formulation of cytarabine and androlubicin. Looking at recent developments regarding treatment options for AML, what are the most important ones at the moment? Yes, uh, I, I, I just mentioned the, the introduction of Mylotar, that is an anti-CD33 conjugated uh, monoclonal antibody with Dintuzumab uh, ozocanizin. Um, I mentioned also uh, Dixius, that is a CPS351, a liposomal formulation of Dauno and uh, Arasi. I, I mentioned a first-generation FLT3 inhibitor, such as Midostaurin, uh, that um, 
uh, is a, a non-selective filter three inhibitor and uh, has a, a consistent results in the in the frontline setting uh, in younger patients. Uh, but we have uh, new molecules that are that are coming, and uh, in particular, I would uh, uh, highlight uh, the potential role uh, of um, second generation filter three inhibitors. In particular, now in the relapse refractory setting, uh, such as uh, gilteritinib or quizartinib, um, those agents uh, are being tested in the front line in combination with intensive chemotherapy for younger patients. They could be also promising agents uh, in the front line for older patients with FLT3 mutations in, in combination with uh, hypomethylating agents or low dose RAC. And then we have. Uh, the family of IDH inhibitors, IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors, uh, that uh, get uh, recent approval by uh, Food and Drug Administration Agency in the US for the treatment of relapse refractory IDH mutated patients and uh, with, uh, with quite uh, good results in monotherapy, and now they are being testing in combination in the front line. Um, and of course, uh, there is also the eruption of uh, BH3 mimetics, uh, BCL2 inhibitors, such as uh, Venetoplax, uh, that uh, uh, had uh, um, quite uh, uh, promising results in the, in the phase 3 trial, the Viale E trial, uh, in combination with HMA compared with uh, HMA alone. And uh, it looks that this agent, in combination with uh, azacitidine, could lead to increase the uh, rate of compromission or compromission within complete recovery in, in, in older patients uh, that uh, uh, and in particular with with long-term survivors and which is uh, uh, quite a new finding and um, of course this is this is a, a, a new approach that could benefit to to the the most difficult to treat setting of AML patients which are uh, older and unfit patients. It appears as though treatment is being more and more customized according to the patient characteristics. How do you think this personalized AML treatment will look like in the future? No, I think that we are entering a, in a new era of therapy for, for AML. And we are, let's say, quoting suffering this because there is more complexity of diagnosis, more complexity of treatment schedules. And this is going uh, deeply on on the on the clinical routine practice uh, it was in clinical trials five ten 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 years ago and now it's entering in in, in our practice uh, as i mentioned the, the the treatment selection is quite uh, more uh, difficult uh, algorithms are are more complex um, the question is whether all this complexity will translate in the real life uh, setting in uh, significantly improved results. Uh, we will see, we will need the uh, epidemiologic registries uh, to really know how our patients are uh, benefiting for, from all this complexity. One thing that, that, that I, can, I can see uh, already that is happening and for sure our patients are benefiting is in the possibility of uh, subsequent therapies uh, in the refractory overlap setting. Before it was only ABC and now we, we have 
A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So there are more possibilities, more treatments are offered to patients, and I think that this book will very probably translate in clinical benefits. Dr. Montesinos, thank you very much for your time and also for this discussion on our podcast. Okay, no, thank you. We hope that this podcast was valuable for you. Check our website and 2h.nl for other interviews in this series.